Welcome back to the Der Show. By the time you see this show, I will be in Israel, hopefully meeting with people in the new government and assessing the political situation uh, in Israel. But uh, even before I um, do a show from Israel um, directly, I wanted to comment on the last uh, election and the implications of the last election for the United States. Israel and the United States have a tremendous amount in, in common. Uh, voters vote about the same way. The country is deeply divided between right and left. It has moved <clears throat> more to the right than uh, it had previously uh, done. And the most recent election uh, in Israel uh, resulted in a government that will have in it some pretty extreme right-wingers, although Netanyahu himself is a centrist, center-right. Um, Netanyahu isn't that different than, than Joe Biden, or really, from a political point of view, that different from Donald Trump. They're very different in terms of personality, very different in terms of divisiveness, um, although Netanyahu can be very divisive, too. I mean, he people... Uh, treat Netanyahu in Israel the way many Americans uh, treat Trump. Uh, some regard him as the king, um, and they love him, and some regard him as the devil, and they hate him. Uh, that would be true, as well as um, of voters of the United States. But there's been a movement to the right in Israel, <clears throat> and a lot of my friends who are liberal, many of them not all of whom are, are Jewish, most of whom are supporters of Israel, have expressed concern. Why, why should Israel be moving to the right? Uh, well, there are a lot of good reasons for it, and I understand it uh, completely. Let's start with the most obvious reason. As a result of work done by people like me and, um, and people like Elie Wiesel and, and Erwin Kotler and others, uh, who worked on the Soviet uh, dissident and Jewry movement, uh, close to a million, a million former citizens and their children of the Soviet Union moved to Israel and became Israeli citizens. Now, these are people who have been oppressed, oppressed for years and years by communism, by socialism, by the left. Uh, it denied them the right to practice their religion, the right to earn a living, the right to bring up their children in, in ways that they wanted to bring up their children. Do you really expect them when they move from the Soviet Union to Israel to start voting for the left? They just left the left. It's very much like emigres from Cuba to Florida. Um, they left Castro. They're not going to vote left. If you have been under the thumb of Castro for many years and you've seen relatives uh, killed by, by Castro, as, as he did in the early days of his regime, you're not going to vote left. And that's why so many Cuban-Americans, not all, my friends, several of them are very prominent uh, Democrats, uh, Cuban-Americans, but a lot of them are Republicans because they react to having lived under uh, under communism and under the left and under under Castro, the same is true of um, of Israelis. Uh, don't expect them. Don't expect them 
to um, to to vote left when they just experienced a, a, a communism. Um, you know, the same was true of many Jews who came to Israel from North Africa and from other Muslim countries. Um, many of them had been oppressed there. They were regarded as second class citizens. And so, you know, their 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 attitude toward Arabs and toward Islam uh, was not necessarily the same as Ashkenazi Jews who grew up in uh, in Europe or in America or in Canada or in Australia uh, or in other parts of the world where they hadn't been oppressed. So voting patterns often reflect where people come from and what their heritage is and what their background is. Why do so many Jews in America automatically vote Democrat? Because our parents voted Democrat. Our hero was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We didn't know that uh, uh, he didn't open the doors to the United States to uh, future victims of the Holocaust and that his actions uh, could easily, if he had done the right thing, saved uh, hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of of Jews. But uh, the pattern was established. We were liberals. We supported uh, fair wages. We supported fair employment laws. We supported Social Security. We supported the New Deal. So many Jews continue to vote Democrat. But in Israel, in addition to the fact that a million people, and that really makes the difference as to uh, the balance of power, came from oppression under the Soviet Union, there's another reason as well. When the left was in power, uh, they tried to make peace with the Palestinians. Ehud Barak, uh, who I know and, and like, um, uh, offered the Palestinians a state. And Bill Clinton offered the Palestinians uh, a state. And it would have been a very large state, uh, a state on a very substantial amount of the West Bank, uh, certainly over 90%, perhaps as much as 95%, uh, with a dual capital in, 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 in Jerusalem. And Arafat turned it down and, and, according to at least many Israelis, made a fool of, um, of Ehud Barak, and he immediately lost uh, the, the, the elections. Um, and, and then there was the Intifada and violence. And uh, when you get violence, when you get Palestinians blowing up pizza parlors and attacking kindergartens and blowing up buses, you're not going to necessarily vote for the peace lovers. You're going to vote for those who show strength and those who are, are willing to stand up and flex muscles. Um, now, the left flex muscles, too. When Rabin was prime minister, he's a person of the left, person of the Labor Party. He talked about the policy of broken bones. He said, you know, we'll respond to the Intifada, to, to Palestinians murdering uh, Jewish children by breaking their bones, by being very tough. That became a subject of great criticism. But, you know, people on the left have been tough as well. And, and, and uh, uh, but when, when the Palestinians reject peace, and they rejected it many times, they rejected it in the 1930s, they rejected it in 1948, they rejected it in 1967, they rejected it essentially in 1990, they rejected it in 2000, 2001, and then most recently in 2008 when Ehud Olmert was the um, prime minister and he was center-right, he made an even more generous peace offer to the 
Palestinian Authority, and they did not respond positively. And so uh, the movement has inexorably been to tougher security measures, tougher attitudes toward terrorism, and maybe even tougher attitudes toward Arabs in, in, in general. Um, so the movement to the right is, is easily explainable in Israel. And, and, and by the way, most European countries have experienced the movement to, to the right. Britain rejected uh, the left and has had now conservative prime ministers um, for a time. They resoundedly defeated Corbyn as they, as they should have. Italy has had a movement to the right, obviously Hungary and Poland and uh, other countries. Um, it's interesting because when I went to Europe um, with my wife and my daughter, in the summer of 2016, the year of the presidential election, we traveled all over Eastern Europe. I made a speech at the Jagiellonian University commemorating um, the end of the Holocaust, the beginning of the Nuremberg trials, et cetera, et cetera. And then we traveled from Krakow, Poland, uh, to the place where my grandparents were, were born and came from, and uh, Poland and Hungary and uh, various other places. Uh, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Austria. And we sensed um, at that point in time, a drift to the right, um, a drift toward nationalism, uh, a drift toward charismatic leaders. And I came back from the trip. And in August of 2016, at an event on Martha's Vineyard, at which Hillary Clinton, then clearly the leading candidate for president of the United States appeared, I, I took her aside. Uh, after the talk, and I said, Hillary, I've known her since she was a law student. Hillary, you are going to lose this election. There is a wave sweeping the world uh, toward the right, toward authoritarianism, uh, toward charismatic leaders. And you're not any of those. And Trump, who I was opposed to, seems to have caught that wave. And you've got to do something about that. And she didn't. And uh, she was too confident. And she didn't do enough uh, campaigning in, in, in critical states. And obviously, also, the director of the FBI, James Comey's statement uh, just on the eve of the election about uh, her computer and other related things didn't help her. But I think the reason she wasn't elected was because of that wave. Now, of course, she won the popular vote. So the wave wasn't something that was uh, obviously contagious to uh, the United States. She won the, the popular vote. But uh, that's not the way we elect presidents in the United States. We elect them via the Electoral College. Now, that's not the way we elect prime ministers or the way Israelis elect prime ministers in Israel. It's not. None of these countries are pure a democracy in, in the United States, it's far from a democracy, the Electoral College, when it trumps, to use the term literally, uh, when it trumps the popular vote is not particularly democratic. The Senate isn't particularly democratic. There are other institutions. The Supreme Court is not democratic. Um, and so, you know, there, 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 is, there is that issue. Um, and in Israel, it's de very democratic. You vote for the party. And then the person with the most seats in the Knesset uh, gets to be prime minister. But the problem is no party ever 
reaches a majority of, there are 120 seats in the Knesset, and no party ever reaches 61. Uh, so they have to form coalitions. And the coalitions are formed in a non-democratic way. Uh, it's not necessarily the most voters who uh, make the decision as to who the prime minister will be. There was a period of time, a short period of time, when uh, Israel had two votes. You voted for the party and the Knesset members, and then you also voted directly for the prime minister, but that didn't work um, because you would get a different result uh, and in a parliamentary system. Uh, it's hard to mix. So Israel has tried a lot of experiments. They've tried to impose um, uh, limits on who could be in the Knesset. You have to get 3.25 or whatever percent to the vote to get into the Knesset. And some of the previously leading parties, merits and one of the Arab parties didn't make that threshold and, and they were not uh, in the Knesset. Had they been in the Knesset, those parties, they would have voted against Netanyahu uh, and, and maybe he would not be the prime minister. And so uh, if you do a, a, a count in Israel, uh, the number of people who are for Netanyahu and the number of people who are against him are about even. But the way in which voting occurs and the way in which the parliamentary system operates resulted in Netanyahu being better able to form a government, unfortunately, a government that included some uh, people who have expressed bigoted views uh, concerning uh, gays and, and others. And it's a, a tragedy that Netanyahu may have to include uh, some such people in his cabinet. It would be much better, obviously, if he could create a coalition with people on the center left. But they refuse to sit with him in a government because they say he is on trial for crime. I don't believe the crimes are uh, anything worthy of conviction or punishment, but obviously some people do. And uh, so he's having a hard time to form a government. And he will probably have to form a government with people he'd rather not form the government with. What Netanyahu is a magician, and he manages to pull off amazing, amazing feats of, uh, of magic in order to stay in power and to keep his Likud party in power. So uh, I suspect that we will see a government uh, uh, formed with um, Netanyahu being the, the prime minister. As I'm sure many of you know, Bibi's an old friend of mine. I've known him since he's in his early 20s. Uh, in the 1970s, uh, we were... Uh, uh, on a show called The Advocates. Uh, we were both advocating for Israel. He was then a student at the MIT Sloan School of Business, and I was a young professor at Harvard Law School. I'm about 10 years older than he is, and um, I've, I've known various members of his family. And whenever I go to Israel, I have dinner with him and Sarah, his wife. Don't know whether I'll be able to this time because he'll be in the process of forming uh, a government, but uh, surely I will have an opportunity at least to uh, meet with him, perhaps over a cup of coffee or just to uh, say hello and give him my two cents. Uh, I have a wonderful story about that. So I may have told this before, but it's worth telling again. Um, my only remaining uncle, uh, my father's youngest brother, um, moved to Israel, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, changed his name from Dershowitz to Dorshav, a much more Israeli name. Dorshav means the generation that returned uh, to Israel. It's a very picturesque name. And uh, he 
just uh, is turning 96. Uh, but for his 95th birthday, we decided to have a family Zoom and we had, I don't know, 100 people on the Zoom and everybody was congratulating him, wishing him a muscle tub. And then I interrupted and I said, excuse me, I have another person on the phone who wants to wish him a congratulations. And everybody's saying, well, let him wait online. Let him wait. I said, no, 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 you really want to hear from this guy. And of course, it was then the prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. And he said, hey, Uncle Zaki, calling him by how I call my uncle. Uh, Mazel tov, congratulations on turning 95. Uh, it's great. I hope you enjoy your birthday and may you live to 120. And he's about to hang up. And my uncle says, wait a minute. I have the prime minister of Israel on the phone. I've been dying to tell you how I think you should run the country. And <laughs> my uncle then kept him on the phone for at least another 10 minutes, criticizing almost everything he did and telling him what he should do. Because in Israel, there are 9 million prime ministers, and my uncle's one of them. And uh, when he finally let him off the hook and Bibi hung up, he called me a few <laughs> minutes later and said, that's the last time I'm ever getting on a, a phone call with any of your relatives. And I said, well, what do you expect? He's a Dershowitz. Of course, he's going to tell you what he thinks. Um, you know, I come from that kind of a family. We always loved each other and uh, we were always uh, critical of uh, each other's positions. And uh, we fought and argued about about everything and probably that's why i became uh, a lawyer but israel is an amazing place uh, let me just uh, end this part of the show by saying there's no country in the history of the world faced with threats comparable to those faced by israel from iran from terrorism from hamas from hezbollah no country in the history of the world faced with comparable threats that israel faces today has ever had a better record of human rights civil liberties compliance with the rule of law, or concern with the lives of enemy civilians in trying to minimize their deaths in warfare. When I debated at the Oxford Union about Israel, I challenged the very left members of the Oxford Union, many of whom were anti-Israelis, to name a single country in the world that has a better record. Nobody, nobody, nobody could. Also, no country in history has ever contributed more to humankind in 75 years, that's all Israel is, not quite 75 years old, started in 1948, has ever contributed so much to humankind in terms of science, technology, agriculture, literature, um, everything uh, in 75 years in the United States is done. Compare the United States first 75 years, um, obviously that's the run-up to the Civil War um, uh, with Israel's progress. Now, obviously, we live in a different age, and so you can't really uh, measure that. But w whatever you feel about Israel's policies, whatever you feel about Netanyahu, you just cannot deny that Israel has been a light unto the world and has made major contributions. And a world without Israel would be a much poorer world, and that's why I get so upset when people try to delegitimate Israel, deny them the right to exist. And yes, if you single out the nation state of the Jewish people for delegitimation, if you only attack Israel, as the United Nations often does, that is a form of anti-Semitism. And so let me turn to some uh, letters that reflect some past shows, and I'll be getting more letters and uh, bring them in, a, in, up to, in an up-to-date way. But here are some of the letters. Um, this comes from my um, show on the election, of the American election, which 
obviously, is not is not unrelated to the Israeli election. It shows us once again that Democrats cheat and do so in a very open, absurd manner. I haven't heard any evidence of any allegations, but you know, if you are brought up to think that Democrats cheat, you know, that's a stereotype. The reality is that elections don't matter in the country. It is the property of globalists that install who they want to into power, regardless of what the people think. Who, who are these globalists? Um, what power do they have? Uh, they don't vote. And uh, uh, if, if the globalists control, how come Democrats win popular elections? They won 2000, they won 2016, and they won um, in 2020, the popular vote. Uh, globalists oppress people uh, of this country and the world. It's just that's another another conspiracy uh, theory. Uh, we had a show on, um, on baseball, and I had referred to uh, Sandy Koufax uh, trying to get a salary of a hundred thousand dollars, and and now you have players like Aaron Judge who probably get a hundred thousand dollars a game. Um, so somebody writes to me: Koufax was from another planet, best ever. People can argue, but not over this. Well, the planet he came from was Brooklyn, and uh, he lived down the block from me. And um, I knew him, obviously, to say hello. And for my birthday, I think it was my 50th birthday, my wonderful, terrific, great wife arranged for Sandy Koufax to join me for dinner in our home in, in Cambridge. And that was a real thrill, sharing memories of growing up in, in Brooklyn. Um, he grew up in, in Bensonhurst. I grew up in Borough Park, but when he was about 14 or 13, his father moved to Borough Park. He still stayed in school in Bensonhurst, but uh, he used to play basketball at the at the YMHA on uh, uh, a couple of blocks away from me. And I saw him play and, um, um, you know, I knew him to say hello. He was not famous in our neighborhood because in the years he played for the Brooklyn Dodgers, he wasn't a great pitcher. He became a great pitcher when the Dodgers moved to Los Angeles. Okay. We don't vote for who we are taught by the media dis to dislike. The sentiments of the population matches the message of the political parties. The Democrats made it clear they have nothing to offer except hatred of the other. They would, If they would change their messaging, the population might be able to vote for something rather than just against another party. Look, I, I agree that that's a problem in America, that we vote against the party we dislike. I have to tell you again, I've said this before and I've been criticized for it. I think President Biden is doing a pretty good job, a better job than President Trump would have done had he been reelected in trying to eliminate the horrible divisions that separate our country and try to bring us together and try to talk to each other. That's why I voted for Biden. That's why I will vote for him again if he runs against Donald Trump. Um, one other analysis of the election. We don't like political dynasties. People voted for Trump because they were sick of politicians like Hillary Clinton. She was not Bill. She should never have become a senator based on her name recognition. She should never had lived in New York. And for her to run there was disgusting and cynical. She was an awful secretary of state and generally unlikable. I don't agree with that. I think she was a very good secretary of state. And she's very talented and very able and very brilliant. Um, she's not a great politician like Bill. In fact, I remember once on Martha's Vineyard where Bill Clinton introduced Hillary Clinton and then Hillary Clinton made a speech and I took Bill aside. Uh, it was at the Tabernacle on Martha's Vineyard in Oak Bluffs. And I said, Mr. President, he wasn't the president then, but he was uh, out, out of office. Um, 
you should never introduce your wife again. Um, you're too good a speaker. And when she speaks after you, it uh, makes her suffer a bit by comparison. And so uh, I think others should introduce her. But, you know, it, it, uh, you're absolutely right. She is no Bill Clinton. But then again, on the American political scene, um, there is no such thing as another Bill Clinton. He was unique in his ability to uh, to uh, gather votes and to govern um, and uh, probably would have been elected a third or fourth or fifth time had he been eligible to run. Okay, last question, and it's appropriate to my being in Israel. Are you saying there can be no criticism of a Jew? I criticized Jews, individual Jews, more often probably than anybody, because I know so many of them, and um, I dislike many of them. You can criticize anyone you want as a person. You cannot criticize the Jews. You cannot say the Jews control the media. The, the you know individual Jews who own particular companies uh, that are media companies hate each other. They, they're in competition. The Jews control hedge funds. They're in competition. Uh, individual Jews uh, have made it, made it by the, the sweat of their brow, and uh, you should congratulate them. Uh, but uh, when, you when, you, when you attack a specific Jew on the merits, hey, I'm on your side. That's fine. But if you start attacking the Jews or Judaism or Zionism, you've crossed the line, and yeah, that becomes bigotry. So, you know, anytime you want to criticize a Jew, including me, go ahead, make your day, but limit it to particular people, not to the Jews. Uh, see you soon.